Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across the United States, brought to you by Insurance Business. This episode is presented in partnership with The Hartford. In the latest episode of IB Talk, two industry experts from The Hartford join us for an in-depth discussion on how current events in Asia are influencing the property and casualty market. And welcome to IB Talk, the insurance business podcast. I'm Gia Snape, news editor at Insurance Business. As companies move or expand to different countries, they're able to explore new opportunities for investment and trade flow in new markets. But they also take on distinct new risks. Geopolitical developments around the world have had a significant impact on the global manufacturing industry. Today, we're learning more about how current events in Asia are influencing the property and casualty market. For that, we're joined by experts from the Hartford. We have Alfred Bergbauer, Head of Specialized Capabilities at the Hartford, and Shailesh Kumar, Head of the Global Specialty Insight Center and Head of Economic and Geopolitical Risk at the Hartford. Welcome to IB Talk. Thanks, Gia. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Great to have you both. So first off, how would you describe the current geopolitical landscape in Asia today. Shailesh, if you could start us off. So it's definitely very complicated. Um, But as I often say, geopolitics has always been complex. It's a little different now is that there's a lot more attention given to the subject. And Asia has changed. So if we think about the evolution of how this geopolitics in the region have evolved, 30, 40 years ago, companies started looking towards Asia as not just a source of manufacturing, where they can procure and build goods, but over time also as a place where they can sell their product. And specifically, we're thinking about China in this regard. China's emerged as a huge outlet for revenue for a lot of the multinational corporations. But as China's gotten wealthier, its ambitions have also changed. And this leads to the topic of that potential conflict or geopolitical risk. And whenever this comes up, I think a lot of folks tend to think about China-Taiwan, which is a risk. Well, we often say that there's other risks to also consider and other opportunities, for example, China has very tense relations with a lot of other neighbors, India, Bhutan, Philippines, Japan, Vietnam, just to name a few. And those relations have become a lot more challenging over the past couple of years. And so the conversation we often have with businesses is that when you're thinking about concentration risk in the region, what does it mean to have a lot of exposure to any one country out there from a supply chain perspective or from when you're building? Is that how things should be operating? What happens if there is a breakdown in the geopolitical order? There is some tense relations that start to emerge. Are you exposed? On the flip side, what does it mean that suddenly India is the most populous country and the fastest growing economy in the world? Is that going to be a new haven for where businesses look to not just build, but also sell their products? Trade flows can start to reorient. If the trade dynamics between the US and China or Western Europe and China start to change and businesses do in fact start to move out of the region into other countries, it's going to have effect on maritime activity and where ships are moving and where goods are being bought and sold. So all these factors can come together and dynamically change where the world is headed. It's not just one issue that we think about. But collectively, the way we often phrase this conversation is that there is a change in the global order. So the world we lived in from 1945 to 2010, let's call it, is rapidly changing. The strength and the dominance of Western economies and Western military power is rapidly um, altering. And you are seeing a rise of power centers, not just in Asia, but other parts of the world as well. You are seeing the rise of military powers, economic powers. You are seeing businesses reacting to this by investing in different parts of the world differently. 
And collectively, this leads us to a very, very different world a few years out. And I think it's just something that businesses need to be very cognizant of. Interesting. And Alfred, are these geopolitical shifts that we're seeing a huge concern among your clients? Very much so. And just to, to pick up uh, on, on some of the themes that, that Shailesh shared, the geopolitics is complex. Business is complex. Really, it always has been when you look back historically. Trade across nations, it, it's an ancient dynamic. It's nothing new. It's in this inflection time that the Shalash talked about where you have these, you know, the shift in the global order, the changes in power, disruption that, um, that businesses are often, um, you know, most exposed. And this is where the, you know, from, from an insurer's perspective, uh, there's a higher duty um, of, of, uh, that we see on our, our, on our customers to understand the active dynamics of their, of their, of their businesses. I mean, I'll, I'll just give an example. Uh, you know, in modern times, that complexity of business and global trade has, has increased and, and uh, some interesting trends have, have emerged. I sometimes use the example of a, of, a, of a backpack. To get that backpack on the backs of kids going to schools, uh, standing on the corners in the morning, um, nine countries are involved, 15 suppliers, um, all working in active dynamics, shipping goods across the world, three continents, um, to be able to deliver these products. Why? Because there are relative advantages, there are cost advantages, there are price purchasing parity advantages that make it, and also an infrastructure that allows these goods to be shipped in, uh, you know, with precision to be able to deliver a low cost product uh, to, the, to the distribution site to be able to deliver these packages. As we see the disruptions we've felt in the past couple of years here, it's it's a lot more difficult to do these simple products utilizing these complex uh, ecosystems that we've come to rely upon. And that's part of the dynamic shift that we see with our with our clients. Um, a lot of ambiguity has has come into the the world of global manufacturing. While there's a lot of co- conversation around you know onshoring and you know let's bring all of our our manufacturing onto a, you know the home country you know for for for, for uh, you know. Not not just a this is a conversation not just for the U.S. but other other major manufacturers. It's impossible really to to uh, to completely onshore when you look at the relative advantages, the cost advantages, and also the clusters of ecosystems around the world that are that have emerged over time to to fulfill manufacturing needs. A couple of of, of impact points that are worth talking about. Um, you know, we talk about cost inflation. So the the supply of goods is erratic. We can't rely on on goods to be the place that they need to be. So this just-in-time delivery uh, posture is, is not always, just-in-time manufacturing is, isn't, we're not able to rely on it the way that we used to. Labor uh, disruption has caused uh, cost increases. When you look at manufacturing, we couldn't get people into manufacturing uh, locations for a long time. Trucking, there's a global tr- uh, truck driver shortage. Shipping, um, the disruption of sh- moving, moving goods from, from, service, from place to place, service businesses as well. Then you layer on top of that energy costs. First, the you know, availability uh, uncertainty over, over the past 12, 12, 24 months has, has caused uh, quite a bit of consternation. And then the cost uncertainty has brought in this dynamic of, of, of kind of runaway costs on, on the, on the uh, runaway costs and also the ability to fulfill um, obligations. Um, then we look at time to complete projects. You know, it, it has this rippling effect, right? It's, it's, it, we can't rely on chips. We can't rely on construction materials to be there on time. So, so if someone has a fire and we need to rebuild a building, we can't rely on having the goods, having the people um, to complete them. So the the disruption goes a little bit longer. 
And when we look at insurance, um, I'll just give three quick examples there uh, of property and in, in insurance. There, uh, you know, we have the you know, first the, the physical loss, right? You have a fire, something burns down. We can we we look to replace, um, uh, you know, the the the, the equipment and and the uh, uh, and the and the facilities, you know, by by rebuilding. So I talked about those delays, but then there's a, a pecuniary, a financial loss that results. Um, there's a disruption of business, so we'll pay. We, we, we have a, a provision in policies that pays for business interruption, the cost of, of, uh, of uh, the, 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 the financial impact of a physical loss, right? So as we look at this delay, suddenly the exposure to insurance companies extends and, 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 uh, and, and stretches out because the, 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 biz, the, the disruption of the business lasts longer than it ever, ever has been before. So our policies are being called on to pay more of this financial loss. The other two pieces, one is dependent uh, business interruption, where we have these complex chains where you have maybe five country operations. One has a physical loss. Three other locations have a pecuniary or financial loss, which is um, you know, which which can be quite devastating to a company. And then there's contingent business interruption where uh, a supplier, a non-owned facility, is um, you know has, has a loss and it disrupts the whole chain. So I think you know, for us, the, the impact is. Each of these areas can have uh, can have a loss that is that that then amplifies for for insurers. I think property is probably the most the most acute uh, example that I can share. So, as companies look to different locations to expand their business or move their operations, what risks should they be considering? So, concentration risk is a is a big topic, and and it's becoming even bigger. And it's it's an issue we actually flagged in a publication. So, we we publish pieces, research pieces, white papers. We came out with a year ahead 2023 outlook, and in it, we specifically flagged exactly this topic, which is concentration risks. Businesses increasingly worried about how much dependence they have in any one country or any one part of the world for procurement of products, for manufacturing, or overall their supply chain is contingent on risks in that country. So as businesses think about this and they want to expand, um, practical example being They've got too much dependence in one part of the world. They want to start to uh, de-link from there They're, for whatever reasons. They're looking to expand businesses or manufacturing in India or Vietnam or Mexico. There's two ways to think about this. First is from a business generation or a kind of creation standpoint, manufacturing specifically, the regulatory environment of the country they're looking to go into. Does it have the infrastructure that they need? Does it have the availability of power that they need, the human resources that they require? You know, labor is becoming increasingly challenging. If you look at Europe, a little bit of a tangential point, if you look at Europe, Europe is a rapidly aging society, which is creating all kinds of economic stress points from a pension system. So you have expensive labor, you have an aging society, you've got other cost overhangs. So those are considerations businesses should be thinking about if they're looking to build or, or procure product in a new market. Um, as I mentioned, the regulatory environment, is it is it one where you can easily enter, engage in foreign direct investment, license products, build products, and um, not face the bureaucratic or red tape hurdles. And I think what you're finding, though, is as companies navigate this, it's not that easy. Uh, a lot of them have become dependent on certain countries in the world for manufacturing, whether it's ease of doing business, whether it's access to labor that they need, whether it's the regulatory environment is very favorable, or really strong infrastructure, enabling them not just to build a product, but actually get it to the ports and out to sea. That's a really tough series of events you know, to your question, businesses need to be thinking about this as they look to expand um, and, and find new favorable markets where they want to manufacture. 
But the flip side to that question is where do they want to sell? And this is a lot more harder in some ways. So a lot of companies over the years, as I mentioned earlier, have looked towards China and other emerging markets as, as huge potential sources of revenue. And as they start to leave these countries or as these countries start to flatten out in terms of their growth prospects, companies need to look elsewhere. And this is where India has really emerged in recent years as, a, as an opportunity for a lot of companies. A lot of tech manufacturers are increasingly looking to not just build locally in India, whether it be smartphones or semiconductors or electronics in general, but they're also looking towards India as a really primed market for where they can start to get that additive revenue sale from. And it has to do with the fact that it is the most populous nation and that they are becoming wealthier and it is the fastest growing economy. And there is a lot of investments going into the infrastructure there. So these are all the factors that businesses should think about, not just where can I build as an alternative, but also where can I sell? It's a twofold question that uh, manufacturing companies have to be thinking about. Alfred, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, very much aligned with um, with the comments that Shailesh has mentioned. And it's a couple of things I might I would add here. You know, a, a key consideration is always going to be the comparative costs. Today, we look at India. India is relatively uh, uh inexpensive from a uh, price purchasing parity perspective and, and from, from a labor cost. It's not as inexpensive as it used to be. So understanding the dynamic of of the labor cost and not just relying on it, right? And, and all too often, historically, we've, you know, Western businesses have gone to the, the you know, kind of low labor cost locations and continued inefficient processes. And I think what we're seeing, you know, increasingly as we see the shift to to India, if we saw it to China, there was a move toward efficiency, even within a low cost environment. And the same is happening in China. We certainly see that with our our own customers, where they know there's like there's a a high labor component to, you know, for example, phone manufacturing. But there's a a deep understanding and appreciation that this this low cost labor can, you know, isn't going to be there forever and isn't a panacea. Environmental laws are, are critical too, and I think understanding the the, the shifting world of um, uh, kind of environmental awareness and uh, um, the duty on on organizations. So right, so going into a third world country, while they may have relatively lax environmental laws, uh, the best corporations are, are acting as good corporate citizens and behaving uh, in a way that they would in their home country and in in other places. I think that's really important. The regulatory environment is pretty critical to understanding the the financial and regulatory issues of of the op, of the country you're operating in, including the insurance laws. There are um, you know potential penalty penalties for bad corporate players, and really understanding how you structure your insurance and and your finances within a within it uh, within a country you operate. Also, kind of at the macro level, the stability of of countries where you operate is is, is Pretty important, really staying abreast of of trends and movements, uh, and you know, uh, understanding uh, you know where where you where as a as a foreign act you know, foreign player you can compete with um, you know a relatively fair playing field. Um, you know, we, we we see all too often there uh, you know that where, where national players are uh, are given preferential treatment. So you know. Individual companies have to really assess that impact on their own businesses, which leads into you know a conversation around intellectual property. Um, you know we we've seen cases in the uh, you know in, in the media about government um, government sponsored espionage. So for uh, 
you know, for, for, for manufacturers, for service companies, really understanding uh, the, the intellectual property risk, understanding how they control it, understanding the, uh, you know, the extent of the exposure they may have in an individual country, maybe even controlling the, the supply chain and how they manufacture in a country to manage uh, intellectual property. Absolutely. There's so many considerations, I think. Uh, Alfred, I'm going to pick up on what you said, which um, you mentioned supply chain. Um, what is the state of the the global supply chain today? I know the pandemic has um, created so many acute challenges for the the global manufacturing industry. Is it still a huge concern for companies? Very much so. Uh, I, you know, I, I think uh, I've got some some micro comments to, to 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 make on this. If it's okay with you, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch this one to Shailash. Shailash, would you mind starting us off at the at the macro level, and then I'll get into some details after that. Yeah, definitely. So, so at the, at the macro headline number, when you look at the data, you look at the trends. There's been a rapid improvement in the supply chain challenges. I mean, that was a, that was obviously a very big catchphrase in 2020, 2021, and part of 2022. And the drivers behind it were were really multifaceted. I mean, on the on the true supply side of it, you had a COVID with a rolling event. It affected different countries at different times, so the supply chain in itself was broken in many ways. You had a dislocation in maritime activity, so a lot of the container ships were left in Europe and they should have been in China or, or Asia in general. Um, the cost of shipping in general became very expensive. Labor was a huge part of it, just availability of talent to actually move the ships, do port activity, move them once they were inland on trucks. So the supply part of that equation was really, really stressed. Um, and let's also not forget, a lot of businesses, and this is very well documented, a lot of businesses thought that the post-COVID uh, economic reaction would be a, a, a recession, a global sharp recession. And so they cut back on production. And in some industries, re-ramping production was not really an easy um, endeavor. So the supply aspect of it was really, really stressed. And on the demand side of the equation, you had this unintended outcome of savings rates went through the roof um, because people weren't for a brief period of time shopping or going out. And so there was a lot of demand for various products. And collectively, that's what gave us this supply chain challenge. Now, when you look at it today, um, first part of 2023, there's been a lot of improvements. And when you look at the data, um, not only do we know that various indicators have improved, so I'll go through a few of them, the cost to ship a container has drastically come down from China to LA. It's back to pre-pandemic levels. So the maritime costs aren't where they once were. Um, overall business activity in much of Asia has resumed. You're starting to see manufacturing numbers come back up. Growth rates are coming back up. Um, COVID is not really leading to lockdowns. We don't really care about that anymore. And on the demand side, the demand pressures are easing. And one great indicator we can look at is just what's happening with goods inflation. Goods inflation became really, really high. It went up to around 12, 13% um, at one point, now back to one and a half percent. And if anything else, that's the number to look at. If goods inflation is one and a half percent, then we can use that as a pretty good barometer that a lot of these dislocations I just alluded to have improved. Now, with that said, all industries aren't the same. There are still some challenges. You know, we and our team look at various data points, as I mentioned. We look at the availability of material for construction, for example, for autos, for different parts of the US economy. And it's not even. I mean, for the most part, we are seeing improvements in the availability of goods. We are seeing as I mentioned, inflation for various products reduce, but it's not even. So some some products are still not available. Um, when you go beyond goods, food products are still stressed, and there's various reasons for that. But at a collective basis, there have been material and tangible improvements on the supply chain dislocation issue 
Well, let me hand it to Alfred, who can speak more at the corporate level and what he's seeing from many of the accounts he's working with. Yeah, thanks, Shailesh. It, it's um, you know the the supply demand side did a lot to kind of uh, consumer behavior and and manufacturers uh, kind of consideration of where to where to put assets. Um, maybe talking about some of the shifting operations and a move toward stability as defined by the by by the individual um, manufacturer. Starting with Asia, you know we have you know the the Taiwan China. Uh, China dynamic uh, and quite a bit of uncertainty um, among you know uh, uh, around the rattling the saber with uh, with China and Taiwan and Taiwan is you know global leader in uh, you know carbon fiber chip technology um, so we're seeing I'm seeing with 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 our customers a move and a shift uh, uh, it's not wholesale pack it all up today but it's a, a thoughtful and methodical shift and a move to other locations um, where, where companies can can operate. Uh, so you know, chip for example, ch- uh, chips and carbon fiber. Vietnam is a is a real um, a real beneficiary of that shift. We're seeing companies begin to move move operations into Vietnam. Also, Cambodia for technology, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Philippines coming back for for manufacturing and ASEAN in general. There's a you know perceived stability within ASEAN nations, and they're the recipient of this quiet move. Um, uh, to diversify uh, away from from China and Taiwan, given the uncertainty there. Another another aspect which is interesting, and, and I just don't see like we don't see that much of it in in, in the press, but there is a quiet move, and it, it, we really see it among the kind of the entrepreneurial class, the you know middle market, upper upper middle market uh, uh, sized companies, back to NAFTA and uh, you know Mexico, where we have a real influx of of uh, of clients uh, in, in, into Mexico or an expansion of existing operations. Automotive is is leading that uh, with chip and manufacturing uh, close behind. Canada technology and and general manufacturing is is ramping up there. We see uh, you know a, a, a large number of our tech clients who have uh, you know, Canadian facilities are expanding the Canadian facilities to try to make up for um, the capacity that 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 had previously been uh, uh, coming out of of Taiwan. So a really interesting shift there. And then you look at the U.S. This is a massive country, and there's a, a, an enormous amount going on here. When we look at uh, you know uh, the the move toward thoughtful you know, kind of onshoring of manufacturing, it is it's that the thing I talked about earlier, where it's you know bringing best in class technology in the manufacturing area with um, you know high you know state of the art um, you know safety and environmental uh, laws. It's a really interesting uh, interesting shift. Uh, you know, uh, looking looking back at back at, at America as a as a location for manufacturing, it isn't soup to nuts. It isn't end to end, but it's a, but it's a, you know, kind of a different way of uh, kind of it's a re, a different retooling of, of the American manufacturing base that's uh, thoughtful and it's te- technologically um, you know kind of led and state of the art. Really interesting to see um, auto chip manufacturing, general manufacturing. It, it's coming back. You see it in the heartland. You know, you, you drive through Ohio, Indiana. Um, the South, there's uh, you know really interesting manufacturing and expansion of facilities in places that uh, had been fallow in the past. Pretty interesting um, dynamic there. The way you posed the question was a huge concern for companies. Anytime you have this kind of you know movement and shift, it, it, it you know there there there's there is there's risk, there's potential disruption to supply chain, and we see all that. And it's so all of this kind of dynamic is happening as we have 
as we're emerging from this tremendous uncertainty around, you know, the time, the cost, um, and the certainty of uh, supply of, you know, from construction goods to, to technology. So I just, just thought I'd add that. It's certainly good news that, you know, we're seeing a resurgence of all these uh, manufacturing hubs after, you know, the past several years. Um, you know, wrapping up, thinking about all of these dynamics and all of these risks that are evolving, what actions should companies take to help mitigate future risks amid, you know, the global events that we're experiencing? This is Alfred. Let me, I'll, I'll start off with that one, if that's okay. Dwight D. Eisenhower, um, ex-president of the United States, was famous for once saying, plans aren't much, but planning is everything. So my recommendation is, uh, you know, for, for manufacturers, you need to know your operations deeply and the dependencies of those operations. So it starts at the very basic. What are the values of your building? Do you understand the replacement value of your buildings? Do you insure them properly? And, you know, chronically across the, the, the globe, Corporations undervalue their buildings. They don't properly insure them. And if they have a you know, major loss, they often find that their their limits that they've insured to are inadequate to replace them. So I think starting point, get your values right. Business interruption worksheets. Understand the dynamics of the business flow and the impacts on each of your balance sheets in, in every state, in every country that you operate in. Build flow charts so you really understand where you, you, know, where you have a, a location that has manufacturing facility and expenses that then ship a product to another location for for a second uh, you know for for fabrication additional fabrication or assembly um, where where your financial exposure goes from expense to gross receipts and map that out and it's it's it's, it's not I mean, to me this this should be the 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 stand the base standard of competence in manufacturing we don't see that often in, in the insurance industry companies that understand these dynamics can then go back and look at their suppliers understand backups they have to those, to those suppliers, understand the uh, critical components and the inventory and, and how long they can survive if, if they lose a critical um, supplier and having contingent plans in place to be able to overcome some of the, the challenges uh, that are inherent to this, you know, the, this global order that we operate in, right? And the changing shifts. And that's, that to me is baseline foundational uh, kind of the, the the baseline foundational recommendation that I would that I would make. Shall just, I? Uh, just to, yeah, just to echo on some of Alfred's points, I think having a very healthy understanding of country risk mm. is um, paramount. So to the Palmer, to the point of everything we've been talking about, it's evident a lot of companies have operations stretched around the world. Again, going back to the point of not just from a manufacturing standpoint, but also from a top line revenue standpoint, understanding and appreciating what's happening at the country level politics, the potential for violence, the potential for war, the potential for economic disruption is really, really important. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons they, they stood up the Insight Center here at the Hartford is to start to think about these risks and think about what could happen and how could that affect um, our accounts, us, et cetera, just around the world. So if you're operating in a country where things seem to be okay, but you're not really following the politics or the political narrative, you're not following the shifts and demographics or what's happening with the economic data, you could find a couple of years from now, the entire narrative has shifted. It's a less stable environment. The politics have eroded uh, the ability to do business. Economic policies are less favorable. Infrastructure hasn't developed adequately. And the potential for riots goes up or the potential for interstate conflict goes up for because of their foreign policy. And suddenly you may have a lot of exposure in this country and you're really, really quickly trying to figure out where else you can go and you're not adequately prepared for it. 
or even, or you might not know if that country is completely off limits, what's the effect to your top line, your bottom line, your cost of doing business? Is inflation going to go up? How's that going to erode your margins? So these are all the things we think and believe that businesses should be proactively thinking about. So start with country risk, figure out what's happening in the countries and the regions you're operating in. Where's the trend? Where's the narrative? And then take it all the way down to how is that going to affect you? Even if you don't have operations there, but something were to occur, is that going to affect the global economic dynamic and have some second or third order effects on your operations? And I, I think that's a good place to start. Once once you start to think about those, a, a lot of the story starts to unravel. It's not in itself the precise way to how to mitigate risk, but I think what businesses would find once they go down this path is they start to think about what can you now do to mitigate risk? And the answer is going to vary, of course, depending on where they have exposure. Absolutely. Planning is certainly everything. Wonderful insights today. Thank you, Alfred and Shailesh, for joining us on IB Talk and sharing your perspectives. Fun spending some time with you, Gia. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate having us. And that wraps up this episode of IB Talk. I'm Gia Snape, news editor of Insurance Business. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. For more from the team at The Hartford, visit them at thehartford.com. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on all major listening channels.